0: your holy living word the Bible we pray for pastor Andrew that he will preach your word faithfully and we pray that we will apply your teaching to our lives so that we can glorify your name amen now the Lord had said to Moses I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt after that he will let you go from here And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbours for articles of of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not let the Israelites go out of his country. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, You have said that your word is living, active, sharper than any sword, penetrating to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. You have made it able to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So I pray today, Father, we pray that you would enable me to speak your word faithfully and please cause it to do what you have promised it will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Our friends, I wonder what happens to you at the beginning of a new year. Uh, As it draws near in Australia, we have endless things that are rehearsed. Uh, Our television stations take on seemingly endless rehearsals of the past year through collages of images and music and sound bites and all of that sort of stuff. Some people look forward with wonder and fear and wonder and anticipation as to what might happen this year. Some people look forward, um, others make resolutions, I think, that this year would be one in which, and you might identify with any one of these, weight is lost, bad habits or addictions are thrown away, some new activity is taken up, or some goal is accomplished, and you'll have your own that you've. Perhaps you've tried them a number of times. Others think that such is silly business, really. Um, and uh, they think of the 1st of January as a day for normal things that go on, as they've gone on for year after year after year, and they will go on for year to com- years to come. No different, probably no different from what's to come. Well, our passage for today is very special, um, special for Israelites Because it's so important that they call this day the beginning of months. You can see that in Exodus 12 verse 1. Every year on the first month of the year in the month called Abib they would remember the events that we are going to look at this morning. From now on people will mark a new existence for God's people. It happens from this day that we're going to look at. So with that introduction, let's have a look in your Bibles at uh, Exodus chapter 11 and see what it's all about. Oh, by the way, today there will be lots of Bible flipping. Um, so stick with it. It's great stuff. And I promise you that if you stick with it, you will be well rewarded at the end because there's such good stuff here. So if you're a regular, you remember the plagues God sent upon Egypt. Uh, but now we've reached the climax. The, the plagues have come. We've reached the climax plague number 10 it's important is demonstrated by the fact that it's only on that it's the only one that God announces himself right so it's he he has a focus on it Um, he stresses that this plague will be so severe that Pharaoh king of Egypt will drive Israel right out of his country He, he will say I've had enough go But the cost for Egypt will be very high. Look and listen to verse 2. Have a look at verse 2. Men and women alike are told to ask their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. So they will leave with Egypt's economic support, financial support even. Like a proper and responsible slave master, Pharaoh will give his wealth to these people and say, get out of here, take it. Now look at verses 4 to 8. There's no hiding the terror. At about midnight, we're told, God himself will go out into the midst of Egypt. Israel is God's firstborn son. Pharaoh has treated his son terribly over many, many, many years. Pharaoh has put God's firstborn son under threat. This time, his poor, humbled and firstborn son will not be threatened, but will be lifted up. And Pharaoh, who has exalted himself, will be brought down. And the result, look at verse 9. Pharaoh will refuse to listen to the Lord's messenger. And the result is spelled out in verse 10. And terrifying wonders are performed. And the hardening heart of Pharaoh will cause him to not let the Israelites go. So he'll say, no, you're not getting out of here. So there's the big picture of our passage. In one sense, we could stop there. But there's so much interesting stuff to come. Since chapter 7, we've been watching this great drama unfold we've seen plague after plague, we've watched the reactions of Pharaoh. Now we take a brief interlude while we look at some regulations and ritual practices which most of us don't understand at all. Um, Passover meal, feast of the unleavened bread and the festivals associated. God makes very clear that from now on these events On the events that happen here will be the events that they remember at the beginning of every every Hebrew year. So when the year begins, you'll celebrate what is going to happen here in the coming days. These events are going to shape history for Israel. Every time they think of a new year, they'll think Pharaoh and God. It will define their future. Just look and listen to the description. Have a look in verse 2. God describes the process of preparation. In verse 3, every household in Egypt uh, of, is- is- of the Israelites is to take one year old male lamb without defect. This poor sh- the, the poor share a lamb if they don't, can't afford a lamb. Such lambs are kept for up to four days. Then in Egypt... In Israel homes, there is a mass killing of all the chosen, chosen creatures at twilight. At midnight on the 15th day of Abib, the firstborn of Egypt will die, not just the sheep. Then the Israelites will triumph until the land of the Egyptians, until the Egyptians have finished burying their dead. This is incredible stuff, isn't it? After the sacrifice of the lamb's blood will be collected in basins, in a basin, verse 22 and verse 27. Using a hyssop branch, some of it will be painted on the doorstops, on the doorposts and the lintels of the houses in which they eat the sacrifice. That's verses 22 and 27. Just try and picture this in your own eyes, in your eyes. Using a hyssop branch, some of it will be painted On the two doorposts and the the lintels of the houses that eat the sacrifice. That's verses 7 and 22. This painting of blood says that these households are placing themselves under God's protection in distinction from the Egyptian households. They're protected by God, these people. They will not go back out of those doors until morning. So God says, close the doors. Something's going to happen tonight. It won't be nice. Close the doors. They won't get, go out again till morning. Instead, they will roast the meat and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Perhaps the bitter herbs remind them of their bitter servitude in Egypt. Then they had to make some bread without yeast. This symbolizes that the upcoming journey is made in a hurry. You don't even have time for the yeast to rise. Those who eat are one-time slaves, ready now to travel, ready to be delivered. And the whole event, what is it called? The Lord's Passover. But what about Egypt? What What happens to Egypt? Well, while the Israelites settle and celebrate, the Lord will bring judgment on Egypt and their gods. That's chapter 12, verse 12. Verse 14 to 20 goes on to describe the details of another feast associated with the exodus, the feast of unleavened bread. And these verses are quite explicit, so please grasp them. We're told three things in these verses. It's very important to eat with unleavened bread. Future generations should copy what you're doing. And anyone who breaks this practice and eats leavened bread shall suffer serious consequences. It's an act of rebellion against God. Verse 21 to 27, focus on the details of the blood and the Passover. Finally, verse 28 tells tells us Israel chooses to accept what God has commanded and Israel obeys. And with that, we come to their departure. This is verses 29 to 42. God's threat becomes reality. Friends, I want to try and help you understand this. In every household in Egypt, some mysterious plague strikes firstborn children. Loud wailing comes throughout the whole land. Again, Pharaoh acts. This time it's with a sense of real urgency. As you can imagine, he calls on the Israelite leaders at night. And he totally caves in to the Lord's will. He and his people simply say, get out of here (laughs) as quick as possible. But not before they plunder the Egyptians with the help of the Egyptians. Egypt, friends, please understand this, is utterly humiliated. Israel is exalted. No weapon has been raised by anyone. Not a weapon. The victory is complete without a human hand being raised. Then verses 37 to 39 tell us that there were about 60,000 men, plus women and children, plus other people groups, plus livestock. We don't know whether these figures are literal or symbols of immense size. If it's literal, we're probably referring to 2 million or more people plus their livestock. That's a lot of people, isn't it? The logistics of moving such a group of people and animals must have been incredible. And yet move they do. They had been 430 years in Egypt, 430 years. And that night, like every night, the Lord watches on and keeps vigil over his people and brings them out of Egypt. Then in verses uh, chapter 12, verses 43 to 49, we're given additional Passover regulations Stick with me, it's very important as we do it today. Non-Israelites are allowed to join. But if they do, they must become Jews. And so they show their willingness to do this by being circumcised if they're men. After all, you see, this is a covenant community in covenant with God, and they have a history of relationship with God. They're the children of Abraham, the children of promise. Exodus 13, verses 3 to 10 repeat and expands on the regulations of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And all of this indicates just how important this is to Israel. Friends, this is, even today, celebrated. This makes Israel. It's something that's unique to them in history. And verses 11 to 16 describe the future consecration of firstborn children. If you're a firstborn Jew, all of this indicates just how you should act. They are a nation who finds its center here in these deeds. Most of us think it's in the Second World War, but actually it began long before that in God's rescue here. What other nation in history has experienced such a thing as this? But before we finish looking at this section, I just want to concentrate on verse 13. Have a look at verse 13 with me. Notice what God is saying. The lamb's blood is shed so that the plague let loose on Egypt will not touch the households of those who slaughter the lamb. In other words, the blood of a lamb indicates that a particular household is a Jewish household that lines itself up with God's purposes. God has spared this household. It is his household and because of that, because Israel is God's firstborn, then every firstborn in Israel belongs from now on to God. That's what's meant in verse 13, 1 and 2. Then in verses 11 to 13, God explains that a bit more. He says that because every firstborn son belongs to God, every firstborn son should be given to God. If an animal... Uh, and, uh, if an animal... This obviously means offering it to God in sacrifice, but not if you're a child. In the case of sons, they're redeemed by sacrificing an animal in their place. Can you imagine what it's like to do that? You know your child, in order to further Israel, should possibly need to die. But no, because God has provided a way out. He says, because every firstborn son belongs to God, every firstborn son should belong, should be given to God. Friends, if you go through this every year, you'll remember it, won't you? What an incredible set of chapters this is. Now let's travel into the future. Come with me into the future. Let's land in the New Testament and let's see what they make of all of this. Turn to Luke 22 with me in the New Testament Luke 22 so flip over you know and uh, find Luke 22 and I want you to look at verses 1 to 2 the feast of unleavened bread is drawing near Passover is drawing near it's happening at the same time as the very death of Jesus the son of God is about to come about Jesus organizes for the Passover celebration To be celebrated with his disciples, verses 7 to 13. And during the celebration, do you know what he does? He takes some bread. He gives thanks. He breaks it with his disciples. He tells his disciples, this is not, not a lamb's body. This is my body, which is given for you, verse 19. In other words, this bread is linked to or represents his death, his body given... He is the sacrifice. What's more, when they eat of it, they are, not, they are to remember not the Passover lamb, but him. His body given. He's the sacrifice. The lambs looked forward to him. What's more, when they eat it, uh, sorry, then they are to do it in remembrance of him. But then after they eat, after they eat, Jesus then takes a cup of wine. And he says this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Can you see the impact of this? It's very clear. Where the old covenant came out saving as a, of a saving event linked to the blood of lambs and celebrated in Exodus, this is very different. The, well, it's the same but different, if I could put it that way. The new covenant Not the old covenant, the new covenant is linked to the death of Jesus and the pouring out of his blood. By this Jesus saying that my death will bring in a new exodus. I will be the sacrifice. And it won't be redemption from Israel. It will be redemption from sin and its consequences. My shedding of blood will be so that many will be redeemed from sin. This language is picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Listen to what he says. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Next time you celebrate the Lord's Supper, remember that you can only celebrate it because of the death of this man. Now let's turn to the book of Revelation. And this is sort of where we're going to end up. Well, there's a bit more to come, but turn to the book of Revelation. It's a book that uses images to talk about spiritual truth. Look at Revelation 4. We see a door open to heaven and a rich picture of God emerges. He's the God who created the whole world. He alone is worthy of all worship. Revelation 5 opens the hand of the Almighty. uh, looks at the hand of the Almighty God stretched out. And you see there's a scroll in it. The scroll has writing on both sides. It's sealed with seven seals at the top. So you have your scroll and you pull off the seals as you go. It contains the secret plans and purposes of God. And our curiosity as we look on at this verse wells up within us. What is God about in this world? What is his hidden mind? How will it work itself out? Who is worthy to open this scroll? We want to have a look inside don't we what's in there we long to just peek inside so we cry out with the angelic beings as it were so imagine we were there with them cry out with the angelic being who, who's worthy to break this thing who is worthy to know the secret plans of God that he's working out in his world and who is deserving enough to execute the hidden plans of the almighty God of all the earth? And, and we begin to look around and think, where, where is the person who can do this? And the court looks around, we're told. And the search is engaged in, but they find that there's no one in heaven or on earth worthy to open it. And the Apostle John weeps on our behalf. He knows its importance. Like us, he knows it needs to be opened to find out what God is doing in his world. And then this voice booms out. Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered. He can open the scroll and the seven seals. And all of this seems right, doesn't it, when you think about it? After all, we've heard of great King David, the famous Israelite king. We know of this lion of Judah. Who could be better than his descendant? So so we stop, don't we? And come with me as I imagine what I would do. I look around. And, And do you know what I look for? I look for a lion. Where's this great lion? And I don't find any king of the beasts in the room. No flowing mane. No fierce eyes. No frightening roar or flashing teeth. Right? No, what do you get instead? A lamb. No lion. A lamb. Young, white, small, vulnerable. It's about as far as you can get from a lion. But as we look closer, we know, as we look sort of close more closely, we notice it's not so white after all. There's fresh, fresh blood around its throat. The throat has been slit. It has been butchered. But how can this be? Because the lamb remains standing. And it stands at the centre of the throne occupying the position of prominence. And we wonder, could this be right? Right? Could this lamb be the lion that we've been waiting for? And the lamb marches up. With boldness unmatched, he approaches the throne. And God, who is holy, holds no fear for this lamb. He marches up to the throne of the holy, majestic creator of all the earth. And with fearlessness, he Puts his hand round that scroll, and as he does, the court rings with praise. Can you see the verses there? It says, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. You were slaughtered by your own and by your own blood you ransom from God for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God and they will reign on earth then the court blossoms with noise thousands upon thousands join in 10,000 times 10,000 we're told Angels burst into song and together they praise the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and blessing. And if that weren't enough, then all of creation joins in. And everything on earth and under the earth and in the sea spurts into song and says, to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb do, do you see who's being made equal there to the, to God sitting on the throne and the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and power forever and ever what a story we've come a long way haven't we both ends of the bible what's this passage about what, what does it mean for us Let's check it out in a bit more detail and see if we can work it out. First, let's let's look at the scroll. It's a scroll that can be only opened by a special person. And that person must have particular qualities, worthy and ableness, worthy and ableness. And the text promises us there is such a person. The one worthy and able is the lion from the tribe of Judah. And immediately our thoughts go to Jesus, don't they? He's descended from great, great King David, born of the tribe of Judah. But when John looks around the court, there's no lion, no. Instead of a symbol of strength and power and fierce rule, what does he find? A lamb. A symbol of weakness and vulnerability and sacrifice. Can you hear the message? The power to stand and take the scroll to break its seals, to execute the plans of God, belongs to one alone. To him who overcame the power of death. To him who paid the ransom for human sin through the shedding of his own blood, who stood where we should stand and died. The one who has enabled humans to therefore enter into heaven without death. He is the one who has given boldness to approach the living God Who who would otherwise be unapproachable? Friends, let me tell you, at this point, we have arrived at the centre of Christian theology. We've put a lot of work into trying to understand this text, but we've arrived at the very centre of what God is about. You see, the Bible is clear that you and I are created persons, we are not accidents of fate. We are not some weird and accidental combinations of genetic history. No, we are persons. Humans. We are made and formed by the almighty God of all the earth. As created persons, we belong to him. He made us. And reality, and we were made by him to be his. We were made by him to live in relationship with him. To worship him. We're his But the facts according to the Bible are that we haven't done it very well. We have spent our lives either shaking our fist at God or simply ignoring Him. We haven't worshipped Him as God. We haven't taken His advice. We've not lived as created beings. Instead, we've done things our own way without acknowledgement of Him. We've been our own rulers, haven't we? And it doesn't matter whether this is because of defiance or just simply neglect of him. It's an act of rebellion, though, and it deserves punishment. You see, the facts are that Jesus died because of you and because of me. Don't just think that this is out there. No, no, it's not out there. It's in here. The God of all the earth was born and worked and ministered because of me and you. He made his way to the city of Jerusalem because of us. When he marched with that cross on his shoulder he did it, was doing it because of us. As he prayed in agony in the garden of Gethsemane he did so because of us. He held his tongue and his power to rescue himself before Pilate and the Jews because of us. He watched them hammer nails into his hands and his feet because of us. He hung on the cross because of us. He died because of us and in our place. He took the punishment that was for us. And I'm quoting words from the rest of the New and Old Testaments. He allowed his blood to be shed so that ours did not need to be. But do you know what? The story doesn't, de- doesn't end there, thankfully. <laughs> you see, the facts of Easter that we, we celebrate are that Jesus rose from the dead death could not hold him. He rose again and he demonstrated that he indeed is the Lord of life. He has conquered death. Death could not hold him. He rose again. He demonstrated, I am the Lord of life. Death does not hold me. He has conquered death. He's the giver of new life. And you can see what I'm saying, can't you? Reality is that God is the Lord of all the earth. Reality is he sent his son into the world for us. Reality is that Jesus then died for us. Reality is that he rose in order to demonstrate that he dealt with our independence and sin and rebellion once and for all. Friends, let me tell you, there is no greater reality than that in our world. So in the face of that reality, what can I urge you to do? fall on your knees. Worship this one. Adore him. Thank him. Join in with heaven and earth this day and cry out with all your being worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom might and honour glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. You see, the book of Exodus and the story of the plagues just is is a grim reminder. What it's saying is, unless we take the death of Jesus for ourselves, unless we take it on ourselves, we will have to face God on our own. We will have to face God without Jesus on the day of our death. And if we face God without the blood of Jesus, then God will see our sin and judge us. This is one of the harshest things to hear for us, but it must be said to us. And when he does that, he'll banish uh, us from his presence forever. And we'll live without relationship with him and without relationship with others. Let me urge you today to flee to the reality that's found in Jesus. Accept his death on the cross as being a death for me, for you, for you as you accept him. Accept the forgiveness that he has won for you. Change your attitude from one of independence to one of trust. This is at the heart of what it means to become Christian. In the book of Exodus, you showed that you wanted to align yourself with God and by lining up with his people and his purpose. In the book of Exodus, you did it by sprinkling blood on a doorpost. But do you know what you do now in today's world? Do you know how how you show you're on the side of Jesus and with him And you've thrown in your lot with him. How do you do it? You look to him. You see his blood shed for you. Or you hear about it. And you say to God, God, I want his death to be a death in my place. In my place. I accept all that he has accomplished for me. I take it on. Friends, have you done this yet? If not, please consider doing so. If yes, I have done that, then live as God's person, please. Trust in Jesus. Act as his person in his world. Will you do this? For the cost that was paid for you is absolutely enormous but also so wonderful let's pray Father we thank you so much these things today that we have looked at are tough to look at they leave us exposed but Father we acknowledge that the death of your son has saved us. We thank you for this and we pray for those of us who are your people already that you'd help us to live as your person, as your persons. For those of us who don't, please Father have mercy on us, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.